Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your Children are precious. Wouldn't you agree? Ideally, it would be wonderful if all children's lives were fun, carefree, exciting, safe. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Hello, everyone. I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. Today, we are going to be talking about homelessness and the disturbing racial disparities in the child welfare system. Heavy topics, but topics that need to be talked about and discussed. I have two amazing guests with me, uh, Amada Morales, a family advocate, Hello. Welcome to you. Thank you. And Lincoln Rice, and he is the author of The Ethics of Protection. Um, I shortened your title because I know that there's more after that colon, and you'll mention that. But they are also members of Casa Maria Catholic Worker. And that is an organization that I had not heard about until we got uh, an email on our website, the 411 Live, which we always open up and and encourage people to message us. And somebody messaged us about Casa Maria and you guys and your book. And we looked at that and we thought, yeah, that's, that is a good topic and we should have them on. So I'm really, really glad that you guys are here. Now, among other things, Casa Maria provides housing for specific mothers and families. And I guess I want to start, let that be a jumping off point for us. So when we talk about the housing, and I say specific groups, what is, what's going on? What, what are you doing here? Uh, our housing is mainly for women with children. Uh, so it's the women with children is one of the groups that there's never enough emergency shelter for, and that always are looking for a place to stay. And uh, so we, we have four houses on North 21st Street that are kind of old Victorian houses. Mm-hmm. And uh, our main work is for going back to the 60s is providing that kind of emergency shelter for women with children that need a place to stay. But over the last few years, we've decided to specifically dedicate two of our houses for um, mothers who have open uh, cases with Child Protective Services to provide them a stable place while they try to reunite their fam, try to reunite their kids with themselves. And that's the the part that I found extremely interesting. And I know that you, Amara, has you've been involved with family advocacy for a long time. You know why is this needed? Well, the reason that we work so hard to provide the two properties, um, just we devoted to the families fighting um, to reunify with their children. The reason is because when you have a really, when you have a, a CPS case, it's really like having a full-time job. Mm. Um, and that's because you're expected to meet conditions and you're also expected to attend visits not in your home. Most of the time they're at an office. You're required to get food together, which when you're poor and you're relying on food stamps, if you don't have funding, 
then you have to find a way to come up with food, prepare the meals and, and make sure that they're healthy meals and, you know, lug them on the bus with you to the visitation site. So just to illustrate, there's so much going on when your kids are removed by the government and you really have no way to, first of all, you come in the system, typically you're homeless and you don't have a job. So, you know, how do we expect these moms to balance everything? So we provide transitional housing in a way to help the moms, you know, get further along in their cases and meeting the conditions that the judges are um, setting for them. Okay, so let me understand this. So you have a case, uh, you have a mom, and her child is taken and put in child protective services. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's separated from that child. And some of the parameters of uh, the things that she has to take care of, things she needs to do in order to get her child back would be the visitation. But on the visitation, she has to bring a meal. Correct. Right? She has to get the transportation to get to the location where. Correct. She's given, the women are given bus fare Mm -hmm. um, to get to visits, which sometimes doesn't always happen, but yes. So when you just take a case of a a mom who lives in the city of Milwaukee and her child is put in a foster home in a suburb away, she she's given the bus fare to get the the children are driven to the back to the inner city. okay, um, by a visitation transportation provider. So then they meet at one of the sites where visits are conducted. So it can be within the city limits. Okay, so if her child is taken away and she was getting food stamps, what do they call it now? EBT. Okay, so she's getting that, but the child is taken away. Would that program end for her? Correct. Thank you for pointing that out. She will still receive food share for herself, but because the children are out of home, she has to use her own food share benefits or use cash in order to get money, get food available for visits. And some of these moms have more than one child. Um, sometimes they have three, five, seven, nine oh, wow. in some cases. So they're finding uh, this is another obstacle on top of the lack of housing um, and you know, all the other stressors that are involved in their life. People who enter the system typically have stress already in their life. So we're just, at Casa Maria, our goal is just to try to help eliminate those barriers and to be supportive and um, find funding and also help with transportation, um, any last-minute things that we can do to help ensure that moms are missing visits. If you miss a visit, it's very serious. Um, the judges will um, will really frown upon missing any visits, and there's a good reason for that. So we just really try to do our best to make sure moms are able to concentrate on this really big, huge legal case in front of them. Okay, Lincoln, so I want to turn to you because you've written a lot about uh, racial disparities in the child welfare system. So tell me, what does it look like? Yeah, so this is, you know, as I started doing more research into this uh, field to write this book, uh, it became obvious to me that this it's a, not a secret among 
experts in the child welfare uh, field. It's maybe less common. I think it's very uncommon knowledge among the general public, but when it comes to uh, determine when a CPS investigator comes in to, uh, because there's been an alleged allegation of maltreatment against a child, that investigator needs to determine if there's a substantiated allegation of maltreatment. And if they say that there is, that child officially becomes a victim in the statistics. Okay. And so across the board, whether it's Milwaukee County or in Los Angeles, everywhere in the United States, it's consistent that black children are two times more likely to be considered victims of child maltreatment compared to white children. And then the number increases when we look at now it's been determined that the child is a victim. Do, should the child be removed from the home? Is this a safe environment for the child? And uh, across the board, uh, black children are three times more likely to be removed from the home uh, compared to white children. Even in similar situations? Yes. It's, and this is where I think, you know, no, the experts in the field, there's no definitive consensus of why this is the case, why is this racial disparity, but I, I believe it has to do with implicit and probably at times explicit racial bias where it's just based on, there's no objective criteria, it's based on the gut feeling of the CPS investigator, mm -hmm. and then when that comes before children's court, the judge will usually rubber stamp whatever a CPS investigator says because they'll say, well, they're the ones that has been trained. They know what they're doing. Right, right. And once that child is taken from the home, I mean, does it, is like a snowball effect? Is it tough for the parent to get the child back? Well, it's very tough because first of all, you're in shock. Second of all, this is a situation that People pretty much assume, well, you must have done something wrong if this is happening. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's an ignorant, well, that is an ignorant thing to say because you're just assuming, like Lincoln just said, that this worker, you know, goes off their gut feeling or whatever they tell the judge kind of gets the family stuck in the court system because the level of evidence needed to prove that someone abused or neglected their child, it's a very low uh, standard that the judge has to determine whether or not, you know, it's abuse or not. So um, you get you kind of just get passed in if the worker says there was abuse going on, and then you're stuck in this twilight zone. Um, and a lot of people are already faced with housing crisis, food crisis, financial crisis, uh, mental health crisis, and all sorts of crisis, you know. And so they're just stuck in this system. And the worst part about it is a lot of people don't know, but there's legislation that will um, it, basically the first day you appear, appear in court, you have 15 months to basically get brought into the judge for the judge to finally decide what it is you need to do to get your kids back. And once that happens, it's months into the process. Um, sometimes it's a year in or more, but you have to hurry up and meet the conditions that the judge sets for you to basically cure whatever safety concerns that they think you have in your family. 
And that can take longer than 15 months to do, especially when you don't have transportation and you don't have housing, you don't have support. So it's a very, like you said, it just turns into a bigger and bigger problem because there's all sorts of stigma. The workers usually are not kind to you. Your lawyers, sometimes, you, most times you don't get along with them. Mm. You come from very different worlds. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some examples of, of some of this that you're talking about. Stay with us. You are listening to the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. The impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Everyone deserves to live a full life. And with your help, together we can end hunger. Join the movement at feedingamerica.org slash act now. You are loved. You are valued. You are resilient. You got this. You are there for them. We are here for you. Find free care guides at aarp.org caregiving. I'm an ex-drug dealer, and I'll be your sub today. Two milligrams of fentanyl can be lethal. A lethal dose is in here. Who gets it, I won't know. It's cheap, it's potent, and it's profitable. The sad reality is fentanyl is being mixed into everything now. More kitchen now. Substance use disorder and addiction is so isolating. And so as a black woman in recovery, hope must be loud. It grows louder when you ask for help and you're vulnerable. It is the thread that lets you know that no matter what happens, you will be okay. Welcome back to the 411 Live. I'm talking to Amada Morales, a family advocate at Lincoln Rice, author of Ethics of Protection. Um, we were talking about some of the things, and, and I cut you off. You were about to say something, Lincoln. What was that? Sure. I, I just had two things I wanted to follow up with what Amada had mentioned. She had mentioned the 15 months, and I just wanted the reason the 15 month mark is so important is that once a child is out of the home for 15 months, mm -hmm. uh, the CPS and the judge is required by federal law to start termination of parental rights proceedings. So oftentimes it might not even be the parent's fault that the court cases are, you know, so far apart and the process is so slow. And that's why the parents, you know, we, uh, Amada has done magnificent work and, you know, letting them know that even if the judge and the lawyers are slow, you need to make sure that you're pushing it along because once you hit the TPR stage or termination of parental rights stage, it can be very difficult. Um, the, the second point was you, you had asked uh, Amada, you know, is it difficult to get reunified? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to racial disproportionality, those numbers are pretty constant across the board. 
but I think something that shows how haphazard the CPS system is, is the numbers on reunification. So the national average, once your children are removed, is 53% of the time you get your kids back. 53%. 53%. So that those aren't good odds. Uh, but if you look at the, the highest and lowest states, then it's, a, well, I'll list those first. So in Delaware, the reunification rate is 24%. Wow. In South Carolina, the reunification rate is 77%. So yeah. it, I believe that, that that's one of those statistics that points to the haphazard nature of CPS, mm-hmm. because how can the parents in one state be three times better at getting their kids back and fulfilling their conditions than in another state. Right. Something is going on. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to you guys beforehand, and you mentioned the the example of the woman with Mm -hmm. the chicken. Tell me about this. (laughs) This was the the first case that that really made me wake up to the issue. Mm -hmm. So this was a few years ago at Casa Maria. There was a mother staying there that she had a a 15-year-old daughter. And just if it's always unfair to judge parenting by children, but if you could, this daughter was one of the nicest teenagers we've ever had stay. So helpful, so compassionate, helping other kids out with their homework, helping people, you know, so... But she had these triplets that were just shy of the time that you'd start giving them hard food. And they got the flu, and they had a fever, and they were vomiting everything. And a couple days into this, just out of desperation, uh, she tried giving the triplets some hard food, some a little bit of chicken. Mm-hmm. And they vomited that up also. And then the following day, she brought them to Children's Hospital, uh, you know, and what she thought was the case was the case. They had the flu, they made sure that the kids got enough fluids and gave them some medicine to bring the fever down and they said the kids are gonna be fine. But then the doctor said, but you know, you were, I thank you for your forthrightness and letting me know everything that you tried, but feeding the children chicken was inappropriate, and I need to report that to Child Protective Services. And, you know, this woman and her children are African-American, and I just have a difficult time believing that if this was a mother, a white mother coming down from uh, River Hills, that this doctor calls Child Protective Services on her. And then the CPS investigator came to Casa Maria, believed that this was an unsafe situation for the triplets and removed them. Uh, again, if this was a mother in River Hills, I don't think these children get removed. And so, uh, as I, I point out in the book, uh, the average amount of time it takes uh, a mother to be reunified, if that's what happens, is about 22 months. And that's almost exactly how long it took her to get her triplets back. But if we hadn't been able to give her a space, because as Amada pointed out, all of the court cases needing to go to a third place to meet with your kids regularly to show that you actually want to be with mm-hmm. them. Um, because of her situation of homelessness, she wasn't able to hold down a job and fulfill all of her conditions because she needed to be readily available all the time. So that yeah, it was just a heartbreaking case. And um, yeah, and no one's really factoring the separation and, and the trauma you're causing these triplets when they lose their big sister who's so right. fundamental in their upbringing and their mom. And 
So the case to be reunified took over a year, and there were still issues. There were still problems, and it just... It, no one, the courts, they're not really factoring. Sometimes they'll factor how many times they remove a child, but at the end of the day, they stick to their foster care routine and they take the kids out of the home. There's um, very, very uh, sad and tragic things going on that people aren't really paying attention to because it's a closed court system. Right. So, you know, as I've listened to you talk and I'm thinking solutions, solutions, but it sounds like, you know, sometimes kids are taken away, but what the parent need is maybe help with housing or, you know, employment, you know, those kind of things and, and put the money to that versus taking the kids away. Right. Yeah. And possibly going through a parental termination. Correct. So, I mean, that's pretty much looming if you, it's a kind of, if you have smaller children who are adoptable, it's kind of a for sure thing and it's kind of irreversible once the government files the termination papers, you know, so it's pretty scary. What are solutions? Um, Well, so Casa Maria, we're trying, we've tried for the past eight years to, um, bring the cures to the problem because what they they're taking the kids for safety concerns but there's no funding going in to cure those safety concerns they may give parenting classes and uh coaching but bottom line that doesn't give you safe housing that doesn't help you get to your visits and feed your children so we're really trying to make up for when the system falls short Mm -hmm. And um, we do that by doing this as volunteer work. We're not paid for what we do. So that way we don't have any conflict of interest. And I think it's going to take a lot of folks to kind of open up and talk about this more. That's why we're happy that we're guests here so we could spread the word and let people know what's going on in this closed court system. Right. What do you think, Lincoln? Yeah, I think there's probably two uh, long-term options that that would greatly increase the situation, greatly increase what's happening into the <laughs> to a better realm. And uh, the first one, as you mentioned, would be funding for families in poverty, whether that was bolstering up welfare funds. And there's always been a close connection between welfare and CPS uh, when. You know, when welfare was initially introduced in the 30s during the Great Depression, the only way it got through Congress was um, was if southern states had the ability to prevent those funds from going to black families. And during the civil rights movement of the late 50s and early 60s, that process reversed and black families in the South started getting those funds. And we saw at this point that CPS, which um, up until about 1961 had been a completely almost completely voluntary program. It was if you were homeless or struggling or some s- stress in your life, it gave you the option to place your kids voluntarily with a foster family until you got back on your feet. Uh, in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement in 1961, the federal government said, from now on, if you want CPS funding for your state from the federal level, it can only be for involuntary removal of children. 
Wow. So I think a move back to a more, at least for sure, funding for voluntary removals would be helpful, but also a bolstering of social net programs or something like a universal basic income, social security for everybody <laughs> uh, that might be harder to uh, get rid of, uh, like welfare, which has been really eaten away at the last few decades. Yeah. In writing your book, doing all this research, I mean, I'm sure that there were several moments that, you know, stuff just kind of blew your mind. But it, does anything just really stand out? The one thing that <laughs> did blow my mind, uh, because it was an experiment that would have been unethical otherwise, the, what, the grand experiment, does CPS help families, would be to have CPS go into situations and half the time that it believes it should remove a child, don't remove the child and see what happens. And to some extent, we had that happen during the COVID year. So I'd started oh, working yeah. on this book before COVID. Then COVID happened with kids not being in school and not being able to go to in-doctor, uh, in, in-person doctor appointments. Those are the main two people that report or make allegations to CPS. So there was a lot fewer children entering the system. And there was a great fear among CPS folks that we're going to see child deaths just skyrocket. Right, right. Uh, yet the, the year before COVID, uh, the, every time a child dies in the United States, there is an investigation. Is this the result of maltreatment by someone? And so that's a number that's easy to track even during COVID. So the year before COVID, that number was around 800 and, uh, 1,850. Uh, the year of COVID, the number of child deaths determined to be the result of child maltreatment dropped from around 1,850 to around 1,700. Uh, and I think that basically means it was statistically insignificant. Mm -hmm. the, uh, during the COVID year, CPS was unable to remove tens of thousands of children that they would have removed otherwise, and no more child deaths occurred than would normally occur. Yeah. But, you know, I need to play devil's advocate. <laughs> we still don't know what was going on in those homes, you know, during COVID, because I know that was a stressful time and, um, you know, domestic violence went up. And, you, and you're right. I think that's, that's a telling point that we do know domestic violence went up. Mm -hmm. Like those numbers can be confirmed because the person who is being harmed could call the police or right. a family member could call the police. But they're really almost every CPS expert I know was prophesying that we would see child deaths go up because now not only were the children not around mandatory reporters, but if they had a harmful parent, they were around them all, all the, the time. time. Yeah. So uh, the fact that that number didn't increase but actually decreased, uh, I think, speaks to uh, how there's just this uh, emphasis on removing children better safe than sorry. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think no worker. You know, because we do hear about those horrible situations in the news where, oh, you know, it does happen every once in a while where a worker was somewhere, a CPS worker didn't remove a child and the child dies. No worker wants to be that worker. Right. And so the emphasis is on you remove the child. And there have been, I'll finish up with this, there have been studies done that when you do have that happen in a locale where a worker didn't remove a child and they die, all of a sudden you'll see a spike in removals. So there, right. yeah, <laughs> hysteria. I, I understand that. We've run out of time, but you mentioned that um, uh, Maria Casa is, or is it Casa Maria? Casa Maria, yeah. Casa Maria is. Um, it doesn't take what federal funds, this kind of thing, and 
they work with volunteers doing all their work. Is there some way that people listening could help? For sure. Um, we actually were able to do what we do because of this generational donorship that Casa Maria's had running our main house for over 60 years. So if anyone is interested in finding out more about CASA, um, we do have a website and we have, you can look us up, we'll get you the information to air as well. Okay. Yeah, the, if someone just Googles Casa Maria Milwaukee, we'll be the first thing that pops up. It'll pop up, all right. Thank you guys so much. Thank um, you. This has been an enlightening conversation. Um, a disturbing conversation, but one that really should be out there and we should be ta talking more about this. So I thank you for enlightening all of us. Amara Morales, a family advocate in Lincoln Rice, author of The Ethics of Protection. You can go to Amazon or other book places and you can find that book. And they're also members of Casa Maria. Thank you again for what you do. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you, Brad. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the 411 Live. Remember, we're a nonprofit organization, so if you're so inclined, go to our website, the411live.org, and help us out. Or if you have an idea, a suggestion of a topic that you would like us to talk about, you know, go there and drop that in there. Give us a line. Let us know. So until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.